listeners, welcome to another episode of the Arcananth podcast. It's your host, Dr. Michael Rivera here. This is a podcast where we talk to experts in the fields of anthropology and archaeology. And I'm so happy to have another guest on the show today to speak about people. Uh, our guest anthropologist today is Derek Boyd. Derek, are you there? Yep. Hi, Derek. Where are you calling in from today? Knoxville, Tennessee. Excellent. Uh, how is it at this time of the year? It hasn't figured it out yet. It was <laughs> 30 degrees Fahrenheit this morning. It's like 70 degrees Fahrenheit last week. Yeah. And then I guess it's going to be 50 degrees Fahrenheit the rest of the week. So, yeah. Inconsistent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> around. Uh, well, it's the start of the new year. How are you feeling about 2020? Like, are you incredibly uh, busy at the moment? Yeah, I'm actually a few weeks away from my preliminary exams. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, for those like who don't do a PhD, what does that mean? Uh, basically, they're the exams I have to take as a PhD student to demonstrate to my committee that I am ready to defend my dissertation proposal that allows me to then collect data to then defend my actual dissertation. Wow. <laughs> Many steps. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> um, well, thank you so much for like carving out the time anyway to do the podcast. I uh, really appreciate it. Um, when, when you were emailing me briefly about what we could talk about, uh, I understand that there are like sort of many hats that you work under or have worked under. Um, what areas of biological anthropology uh, would you yourself identify as falling within? Well, my preliminary or I guess primary research vein would be in bioarchaeology, um, specifically in paleopathology. Mm -hmm. And my sort of side projects um, would be in forensic anthropology. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, the two hats that I kind of juggle. Yeah. Uh, and what sorts of, uh, so, you know, good luck with the upcoming <laughs> things you have to do. What, what are you working on at the moment? Um, so in BioArc, I am working on my dissertation research, which focuses on respiratory stress in industrial era England mm -hmm. and sort of the influences of uh, identity on the lived experiences of those sorts of um, health conditions mm -hmm. uh, among adult individuals from all over the country, basically. I have, uh, hopefully, six total sites, um, um, three from the north, various regions in the north, mm -hmm. and three from the south, all predominantly London-based. Um, so I'm interested in looking at how regional differences in respiratory stress would have been influenced by intersectional experiences, mm -hmm. which refers to essentially the fact that when you look at skeletal remains and you are estimating something like biological sex, it can be really easy to think, oh, all of the female skeletons or the supposed female skeletons in this collection had this experience. But intersectionality tells us that that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. So you need to think about other aspects of people's identities before you start making sort of generalizations. And so it's just, you know, applying some not necessarily new theory to some not necessarily new research. Right, right. <laughs> and then in the forensic world, uh, here at UT, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, um, I'm involved as a volunteer with the uh, Forensic Anthropology Center, and the um, which we have rebranded as the body farm <laughs> mm -hmm. and I've done research there. I've, I've been a research assistant. Um, I've uh, 
also sort of conducted my own research there as well with some of my graduate colleagues at the university. So mm-hmm. mostly in human decomposition. Um, we're starting to get a little curious about trauma. And uh, I'm also working with some colleagues on a project. Uh, they've since graduated, but we were looking at sort of understanding the accuracy and precision of using methods uh, to estimate the postmortem interval or time since death. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a lot. And I, I remember like when I was doing my PhD as well, it's kind of like you, ha- you do have like the thing that you're working on and the thing that will, um, the research that will give you your PhD, but also mm-hmm. y- because the, the schedule is kind of like up to you to decide, like uh, there are certain other programs out there that are like more, um, like structured, but it just sounds like, you know, you're able to do this forensic work alongside your bioarchaeology work as well. Oh yeah. It's honestly amazing is that there are programs that are a bit more structured to have you go down either or mm-hmm. path. And in reality, you know, a lot of the methods we use are the same. Obviously the context is different, Yeah, but I definitely do appreciate um, being here, being at the University of Tennessee and just kind of getting those opportunities to, you know, explore various aspects of bioanthropy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we concentrate on um, the uh, bioarchaeological project that you're looking at uh, first, um, mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, like, what is the historical and the like sort of socioeconomic like context of this industrial era in England? Like what was going on for people, uh, broadly speaking, across the country? A lot, <laughs> to put it simply. Mm-hmm. When we think about industrial England, there's a lot of romanticism that happens. People will say, oh, these factories, these, you know, air pollution and everything. And, and really, a lot of that definitely happened. But there's a lot of research that shows that industrialization in England during the time period that I'm looking at, which is the 18th and 19th centuries, it was a slow process. Like, it was not slow on an evolutionary timescale or even on a, you know, recent timescale. Like, these things were, you know, changes were happening mm-hmm. in a matter of decades. But they were sort of these smaller incremental changes like new technology that really did have a snowball effect. And the snowball effect was actually mostly social, mostly social, um, political and economic in the sense that we move from the medieval period where there is arguably slightly more flexibility and social mobility and our ability to move about hierarchy, you know, with the exception of being a serf. Um, But when you get into the industrial period, you get a really, really rigid social hierarchy forming. You get the emergence of the middle class. Uh, And these individuals are predominantly individuals that sort of capitalized on a lot of the changes that were happening in England at the time in the, you know, 1800, or sorry, in the 18th century, you see a lot of enclosure movements happening. Um, which were essentially these parliamentary acts that took away communal farmlands mm. from people that had subsisted on them for generations in their family yeah. um, and sort of made them these privatized areas for entrepreneurs to sort of you know, buy out, sell out with the government and create large industrial farms. And so a lot of people were displaced from their, their homeland or their sort of um, communal lands mm-hmm. and were either forced to start working and providing their labor to somebody else in the same sort of activities, agricultural activities, um, which there's a lot of um, speculation, uh, some research that's sort of looking at 
how um, steady wages were across the seasons. Um, or there, were the, there was the option to start you know, moving into these urban centers uh, where there was more work uh, available to individuals and, and just in terms of sheer number. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really did change the landscape. And so a lot of the individuals that were able to um, essentially accumulate capital early on. And, uh, and so for farmlands, this looked like, again, those large agricultural complexes. For the factory setting, the whole way that factories even came about was you had these cottage industries. You had people building and making things out of their homes and selling them to markets, local markets, even maybe even regional markets. Mm-hmm. Um, but someone thought, you know, or people started thinking, you know, why don't I just sort of use my resources that I currently have to establish a building. So some of the first factories were looming factories where people that would, you know, do textile work at home were like, oh, now there are these, there's a facility where there's a bunch of resources that I can use to expand my, my own business, but that sort of incurred cost to those individuals because now they're working under someone else. They are not working for themselves. It's not a family-run business. It is now sort of, you know, the, the whole idea of, one's labor for the goods that they sell, which in turn, the capital is their own labor, um, gets sort of given to somebody else. And that person starts to become part of that middle class. And so all of that chaos aside, um, we start to see entrepreneurial classes and start to see um, middle class families really emerge and start demanding resources. And part of my thesis, you know, short side tangent, part of my thesis research was really interested in history of medicine in especially London. Yeah. And what that showed was as the middle class emerges and is demanding their own sorts of resources, you see um, a lot of change in the relationship between physicians and surgeons and apothecaries mm-hmm. uh, or just, you know, medicinal dispensers uh, in which you get uh, for the lowest classes, these voluntary hospitals where people are sort of just like, you have to, you getting access to that hospital is kind of difficult. Like if, if you don't have a sponsor, you don't have access. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, middle-class families were like, Oh, we're not going to the voluntary hospitals. We are too good for that, mm-hmm. but we can't afford the in-home care um, that, you know, really, really prominent surgeons and physicians can give us. And so they start, start to demand what we call consultants where there are these people that either work at a voluntary hospital or they work for um, um, or work with wealthier families start to find business in almost a new marketplace, which is the middle class. And so these are just examples of, you know, from the medical history perspective and from just the economic perspective, how you see the emergence of this really rigid classism in England. Again, there'd always been sort of social hierarchies, you know, um, in England in the medieval period. uh, But you really do see it start to get very, very rigid Mm -hmm. in the industrial period. Mm -hmm. And it's, there are a lot of uh, accounts by people like Karl Marx or like um, Frederick Engels. It's like, and you watch the middle class is going to thrive. And then you're going to start seeing people because of the whole issue of capitalism and the whole issue of redistribution of of labor. Yeah. People are going to, in the middle class are going to start falling into the lower classes because Mm -hmm. they get out, they get outbidded or they lose their clients to others in the marketplace. And we even see in the historical literature evidence that even in the wealthiest classes, people um, like, so for example, you have the first generation of really, really wealthy people um, post the initial industrialization. And 
as the middle class starts to make its way in, you get a lot of chaos and friction. You have people from the middle class that are on the lower end falling down into the lower classes. But you also have people, especially offspring of people in wealthy families, uh, at risk of falling into the lower social echelons as well. Mm-hmm. And so there's just a lot of chaos happening mm-hmm. around this rigid class. Yeah. And I imagine like when you're looking at, you know, health and mortality in that time, it's also interesting because uh, this is also compared to like earlier periods, like the medieval period, you have uh, more historic records of these, you know, early medical practices or like, you know, just accounts of what's going on, like in terms of economics, (laughs) Uh, you can then compare that as an anthropologist as well to the skeletal data. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting because you have... uh, Modern historians, and there's a phase of like pro-capitalist modern historians, and now there's a wave of like anti-capitalist modern historians. Whole optimism, pessimism debates about the effects or the, the effects of, of industrialization, especially during the 18th and 19th centuries, on the standard of life, and they kind of disagree in ways. So, with Marx and Engels, they were very much interested in a particular agenda, um, which we much recognize. But there were a lot of on-the-ground observations that Engels made. Um, when he was sort of in England for two years that were pretty atrocious talking about the conditions of the working class, talking about the so-called silent middle class, the so-called, um, you know, conscious middle class. So the unconscious or silent middle class were, you know, the, the, the um, aristocrats or they were the, um, the government officials that were just kind of like making the laws. And then you have the active, you know, conscious middle class, which were actively seeking through that legislation, through convincing the others in their own class that mm-hmm. new laws needed to be implemented regardless of their, the way they affected the working class. And so just seeing that sort of class struggle emerge from firsthand accounts. Now, granted, in anthropology, we know that a short two-year stint is not enough to draw giant, you know, generalized conclusions about an entire culture. <laughs> uh, so take mm-hmm. that with a grain of salt. But when you look at modern historians, yeah, you see they'll collect evidence from what they call real wages um, from documents, or, or they'll look at stature, or they'll evaluate, you know, evidence of literacy and fertility and mortality, all sorts of different variables um, to explore how those things change over time to try and make inferences about those experiences. And where I think skeletal sort of or where paleopathology kind of can come in is to integrate, you know, actual evidence of disease, of, 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 of um, arthritis, of infection, of cancer, of all of these different sorts of disease states mm-hmm. in with that historical documentation to try and really understand and create a broader picture of what happened. Mm-hmm. That being said, for my dissertation research, um, I want to collect archival data, specifically with uh, the sites that I'm looking at, um, or at least hopefully regionally associated, um, that give me an idea of what people were dying from. Mm-hmm. Because we're not going to be able to say exactly what someone was dying from on, skele- on, on um, someone's skeleton. But we can take information about, from the archival um, data about patterns of mortality, and we can then compare those patterns to what we see skeletally to sort of, again, piece together, okay, within this particular community, what was happening. Mm -hmm. And earlier you mentioned that uh, a big area of, you know, how you want to interpret uh, archival and skeletal data is with this idea of intersectionality as you're viewing it. So you gave the example of like, 
you know, you, you don't want to overgeneralize and say like all women are experiencing this and all men are experiencing this, for example. What are like some other axes of identity that, you know, might manifest themselves as differences in, you know, respiratory health? Mm. Um, what are some other factors that could be uh, affecting the the data that you're going to collect? Right. So in addition to sort of trying to understand the uh, effects of sex, I'm also going to be collecting data on age, uh, as well as looking particularly at sites that we have historical or archaeological evidence that suggests what sort of social class those individuals came from. Uh, because again, you see a lot of uh, rigid classism during the industrial period, industrial revolution period in England. And what that does mean as well is a lot of parishes will, in particular, for example, Parish of St. Brides in London, um, will uh, bury people sort of with respect to their class, their shared class. And so St. Bride's Church has a crypt where you have named individuals with coffin plates um, from very wealthy backgrounds. And then you have sort of people buried outside the church but nearby that are not as wealthy but not necessarily you know, impoverished. And then there's some lot like down the street a couple blocks that was the lower churchyard for people that were not wealthy. Um, so I'll be looking at sort of parishes or, um, you know, cemeteries up within parishes uh, to collect information about social class. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, importantly, I'll be looking at regional, um, or I guess regional status. So where someone lived, whether they lived in the northern parts of the country or the southern parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And so by considering someone's age, sex, class region of the country. And again, I'm, I'm broadly categorizing them as North and South in accordance with a lot of the epidemiological literature. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be able to sort of simultaneously investigate what the effects of those interactions were on sort of the distributions of age at death or on distributions of respiratory disease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when you do your data collection, um, when you're about to do your d data collection, like what are you going to be like on the lookout for when you have the skeletons in front of you? What are you going to be taking note of? So uh, I'm going to be using for age at deaths a, a new method called transition analysis. There have been multiple iterations of it at this point, but a, a brand new method that still actually hasn't even been um, released yet will be, uh, I'm, I'm using that method. Uh, which basically asks you to look at the skeleton and evaluate multiple surfaces over like 80 or 90 surfaces. Wow. Um, <laughs> it sounds like a lot, but in archaeological remains with all the damage, mm -hmm. it's in like between like, I think 12 and 25. Uh, okay. But it's not necessarily like uh, that laborious. It's more like, do you see sort of... Um, irregular edges or margins? Do you see uh, margins? I'm sorry. Do you see little bumps or do you see pits? What, you know, it's, it's, you're evaluating very nuanced skeletal features, which are highly correlated or at least partially correlated with um, the known ages at death of a reference collection right. of skeletal remains. So I'll be using that method to try and pinpoint an age at death estimate that provides a number and then a range of other numbers. And so um, I'll be doing that for age at death. For biological sex, I will be actually using methods that are used in forensics, but not necessarily commonly used in um, bioarch. A lot of people still rely on 
um, the standards for data collection uh, by Extreme Uber Locker in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, but since then, there's been a lot of uh, advancement in methods development. And we see a lot of those methods being used in forensic anthropology. And so I'm sort of letting that influence my bioarchaeological research by um, looking at sort of the degree of manifestation of sexual dimorphism or just sort of sex differences in pelvic morphology and cranial morphology. But using um, the Clails et al. paper or method to um, estimate biological sex from the pelvis as well as um, the walker Mm. cranial traits, which um, for those that don't know, again, those were originally included in in the standards for data collection, but since then, the the author devised the fancy new stats method, which has a cool cell spreadsheet. You plug numbers in and then it just gives you a probability that it's male versus female. So those are the methods I'm using for biological sex. Um, And then... For again, for for uh, looking at or trying to assess uh, an individual's relative social class, whether they're upper class, middle class, lower class, um, be I'll be relying on a lot of the site reports um, and the manuscripts that have been published that look at things like um, clothing attire, looking at um, the quality of the coffin bills, location of burials, mm-hmm. uh, whether there are nameplates, and if there are, what whether we can associate them with people. To try to understand, generally speaking, what the um, social class of that cemetery cohort was, uh, and it's you know the I think the more conservative thing to do is just sort of say they were not wealthy versus they were wealthy, but we'll see uh, what happens down the, down the road. And then um, yeah, when I'm again though still looking at skeletal remains. I will be examining the remains for evidence of upper and lower respiratory tract disease. But there's a whole bunch of, you know, scholarly drama around, can we say that we see health in the skeleton? Can we say that we see disease in the skeleton? What is stress? You know, um, the skeleton is just that. It's a skeleton. We can't tell you when we look at a skeleton, oh, this person was healthy because we can't even define what health is in modern people. You know, health is not just mm-hmm. physical, it's psychological. And so there's no way we can get at health. But we're interested in health, so that's a problem. Yep. Um, and then when it comes to disease, mm-hmm. we can't even necessarily identify specific diseases most of the time, unless we're looking at basic things like arthritis or we're looking at, you know, syphilis and, and, and leprosy and tuberculosis. And even then, differentiating skeletal lesions to identify those diseases can be very difficult. And so in the field since the 1970s, 1960s, um, there's been this push towards the idea of skeletal stress and trying to understand that, hey, there are these physiological responses that manifest on the skeleton in response to stressful situations, which can include disease. Right. And I say, I, I prefer the term respiratory stress because when you look at rib lesions, and so, I'll, so for example, I'll be looking at... Um, new bone formation, sort of like spider would be just like rapid new bone formation on the um, internal surface of the rib cage to look at lower respiratory tract stress. Those lesions can be caused by so many things. It could be from chronic coughing. It could be from, you know, I mean, I'm an asthmatic, so I probably have them. It can be caused from tuberculosis. It can be caused from pleurisy, which is just an inflammation of the pleural lining of the lungs. It can be caused by 
fungal things. Like there's just, there's so many different sorts of respiratory conditions that can cause those lesions to form that it's not really, it's counterproductive to try and sit there and spend countless amounts of time, you know, looking at every single inch of every single bone on every single skeleton to really try and like differentially diagnose these remains. Cause at the end of the day, you're still going to be like, well, it could be one of these four things. Right. So I take more of that stress related approach where it's like, yes, I can't tell you the exact cause of these lesions, but I can tell you that they are associated with um, some sort of respiratory distress, some sort of experience that impaired one's ability to, you know, breathe. And as an asthmatic, that can be really stressful. Like mm-hmm. when you are having a hard time breathing, you get anxiety because you're like, am I, am I like, like I can't breathe and it just makes it worse. And some people deal that with, deal with that on a daily basis. And so understanding those experiences, again, not the psychological aspects, but the long-term burden on society mm-hmm. is beneficial, is important. And so and it's kind of the same thing for um, sinusitis because, yes, we know that sinusitis is an inflammation of the, uh, the lining of the tissue in the, you know, the sinuses of, of the skull. But what causes them? It could be bacterial infection. It could be particulate matter just getting in there and irritating things. Yeah. And with maxillary sinuses, the ones, you know, in your, in your face, like when you get a really bad sinus infection, you're like, oh, my face hurts. That's why. Um, with those sinuses, there can also be um, sinusitis developing as a result of dental disease. So like abscesses or like um, bacterial, you know, spread into the sinuses. Mm-hmm. Um, conversely, it can be the other way. Like you just, you don't know the exact cause of these lesions. And so it's just a bit more of a conservative approach, in my opinion, to say I'm looking at, you know, sinusitis as an indicator of upper respiratory tract stress. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be looking at those lesions. Um, but I'll also be looking at um, lesions on the vertebral column and on the, the, um, the pelvis as well, because it is entirely possible that you can have conditions like tuberculosis manifest in those places as well. And again, I'm not going to be sitting there going, oh man, look, like I know this is tuberculosis, but um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I can definitely be like, I see some pretty destructive lesions, the skeleton, like I believe uh, Cecilia said, there's just some not something just not quite right about the skeleton. Like, right. you know what I mean? And again, it's, it's just additional data to help us understand, maybe not just, you know, whether it was just pulmonary tuberculosis, whether it was just located in the lungs, but maybe it did spread to the rest of the body and mm-hmm. what, you know, those experiences were. Yeah. So I think it all depends on like the scale of like your project, right? Like, cause I know right. other people are doing their entire PhD theses on like two individuals from a very interesting context and that's about it, but they do a full differential diagnosis and really examining everything that they can about them. But mm-hmm. in order to ask, you know, what, what you're doing, which is like, you know, England wide questions, mm, yeah. you know, you need to, you need to like limit it a little bit. Uh, and that's how you, how you do that mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. I'm trying to look at like something over like, like upwards of 600 skeletons. And if I were to do that much of a particular analysis on each one, I would never finish my PhD. <laughs> yeah, it take 30 years to do mm-hmm. it. Are there like uh, many people who work on similar questions in this field? And like, what, what do you hope that, you know, afterwards when, when you're done one day, like what do, what do you hope that the implications of your work might be for people in the field? Good questions. Um, so when it comes to the research on 
So I guess the research on the respiratory regions, yes, people like Cecilia Collins, um, Charlotte Roberts has done a lot of work, Karen Bernoski, um, a lot of work. Uh, uh, recently, um, one of Charlotte Roberts' PhD students, uh, I believe her name is Anna Davies Barrett, and her colleagues have done a lot of work in Egypt or in the in Sudan, somewhere in that region of the world, um, mm-hmm. where they were looking at respiratory stress. Um, Karen Bernoski was looking at respiratory stress in all over England as well, um, more of a chron- like a, more of like a time temporal analysis where she was looking at literally the history of these lesions across England in all time periods. So there are definitely researchers that are interested in things like sinusitis and rib lesions, and there's whole debates over whether rib lesions are pathognomic for tuberculosis, whether they're more likely tuberculosis in origin, or whether they're just so nonspecific that you really can't say. Um, and so there's definitely a lot of research in that in that area. There's not necessarily a whole lot of application, and in fact, without with the exception of these few projects that I've sort of um, mentioned, I haven't really come across a whole host of other projects on respiratory disease. And I think that, and, and many others have said that it's a result of the fact that respiratory diseases are largely soft tissue focused, and so they don't often ex- like you know present on a skeleton and when they do they're very very non-specific and so people don't necessarily um want to you know jump into a, a project where you have a bag in front of you of hundreds and hundreds of tiny rib fragments where you're like all right mm-hmm. is that a lesion or is that damage um so in that respect there could be so much more and i think that people like the people that i mentioned you know we're, we're starting to work on that which is good yeah um when it comes to industrial history, I would say that, of course, with, with industrial era England, there's a lot of research into that part uh, time period in human history and location. Uh, but it's very conflicting. You do have a lot of people that are saying, oh, it was, you know, not, it was good for our species. And then you have a lot of people saying, no, it was not at all. Mm-hmm. And so there are still sort of debates going on in that, in that respect. Um, but then... Talking about the intersectionality aspect of the project, I, I get really excited about because people have been talking about intersectionality for a long time. And right now, it's really a big buzzword for obvious political reasons. Um, but when you look at its origins in Black feminist scholarship, it really is something that's, I think, very important and underutilized in many respects, in, especially in, in biological anthropology, but in a large part the social, the social scientists related to the human condition um, because it does sort of make you question what you can and cannot generalize about when it comes to people's experiences. And it, it makes you question how, you know, things like institutionalized discrimination just like can affect people's experiences. And it's just, it's worth noting. And I, you know, in bioarchaeology, especially like in the past few years, we've started to see, the roots of intersectionality in a lot of our research. Um, so when you take a standard bioart class, you always hear about the early years and when um, people would just get really interested in random bones they found at sites that they may not have actually maintained convenience for and said, oh, this is a really cool lesion. I think it might be syphilis. And then over time, people start, you know, thinking more about things like skeletal stress or we start learning more about the ways in which different diseases manifest on bone. And, and you get things like, you know, the emergence of a whole field of bioarchaeology and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But even then, when we start looking at quote-unquote population level studies, it's historically been, I looked at the effect of age on these lesions. I've looked at the effect of sex on these lesions, what lesions 
but never necessarily. I've looked at sort of the interlocking effects of these two variables on disease experience. Right. So not until, you know, in the last, only the last few years, um, do we start seeing again, like sort of it coming through, like sort of this intersectionality-esque approach coming through. There's a paper that was done in, I believe, 2016 by Hughes Morey um, in actually in England, industrial England, looking at adult stature and, and you know, height and, and looking at comparing different individuals from different classes. So looking at impoverished individuals, looking at affluent individuals and seeing which ones were taller, which ones were shorter. Uh, and then kind of it's this weird finding that, wow, people that come from poor socioeconomic backgrounds are taller. What, why does that make any sense? And then if you just think about it a little bit more and you, you start to think, all right, well, it can be very easy for people that are in um, positions with better resources to live longer than people that are not in those, that don't have access to those resources. And so that study show, you know, suggested that first that um, people um, with better access to resources can live longer despite their ailments or despite, you know, the, you know, childhood metabolic diseases, which were just running rampant in England at the time. Uh, and then the, then this author got curious about, well, how does that interact with, um, you know, the sex of these children mm-hmm. or historically, because we can't look at gender on the skeleton, historically the gender of these children. Um, and basically concluded that, you know, um, children, particularly uh, female children were at the, uh, were essentially the most um, underprivileged when they were from the poor families. Whereas um, more affluent female children were not comparatively as underprivileged and were, you know, their stature estimates reflected that or their height reflected that. Whereas you see um, in that same study that the most sort of like uh, advantaged or privileged um, group were male children uh, in affluent families. And so it hints at a lot of the things that these that black feminist scholars were talking about in the 1980s, 1990s, when it came to things like um, discrimination in the workplace and how uh, legal statutes were, you know, anti-discrimination laws were like, oh, we can only let you, you know, use this or, or I guess um, address this problem from one or the other, from, you know, gender or race. But when you do that, you're saying, all right, we're going to use male, you know, so for, so for example, for, um, for, the, for the anti-discrimination laws relating to gender, they are not going to be representative of all women versus men, for example. It's going to be predominantly white women and not black women, and, and at least in the United States is what we're talking about. So that level of um, obscurity of kind of like completely just clouding over the experiences of black women at the sort of um, advantage for white women in terms of representation, in terms of anti-discrimination, mm-hmm. uh, wasn't helping. It was literally pigeonholing them and not giving them the representation that they needed. Yet in the other discriminatory category for race, it was black men that were getting the better representation. And so given all of this, research done by people like Hughes Mori were showing us, hey, intersectionality could be a thing. Um, and then a few, like in the next year, I believe Torres, Ruff, and Newton um, published a paper in 2017 uh, that dealt with a lot of their research in Northern Chile. And they um, 
mentioned and sort of discussed intersectionality, uh, the idea of intersectionality with in their paper. But mm-hmm. it really wasn't, at least in paleopathology, until this last year um, when my good friend Samantha Yassi published a paper from her dissertation um, in industrial era England, um, looking at intersectionality with respect to all sorts of skeletal indicators of stress in um, children and adults. So looking at like um, metabolic lesions, looking at periosteal lesions, which are just basically uh, layers of new bone added on the out- outer surface of bone that's supposed to indicate sort of some sort of stressful condition. And just see, again, evaluating all of those sort of non-specific skeletal stress markers and the intersectional effects of those. Um, and explicitly tested intersectional hypotheses. She asked about, mm-hmm. you know, her hypothesis was, or her, her hypothesis was that people that come from the most underprivileged backgrounds, which again, in intersectional theory, there's some nuance there. You're not supposed to say the most, but you do say things like multiply, multiply underprivileged. So for example, in the, in the examples I gave earlier, black females would be, or in, in England, um, poor female children would be the multiply underprivileged because they are not only underprivileged as, you know, females, they are underprivileged as poor females or as black females. Um, mm-hmm. Those would be the multiply, multiply underprivileged. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, there would be multiply privileged so the opposite. So um, again, in, in the, in the, in the modern example um, would be like white men. Whereas in the, in the archeological example, it would be, um, you know, male children from affluent families. Right. And so, and then allowing there to be variation along that spectrum, because it's, you know, you're not just looking at one group or the other, you're looking at all the groups in between, all the combinations of things. And so, you know, Samantha very much sort of tested this hypothesis and she did find some evidence in the archaeological record during this time period that there is intersectional, or that there are intersectional consequences um, for health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that's really like fascinating and just, in, you know, it's it's new as well, because like when I was an undergrad, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't read anything about this sort of topic in bioarchaeology or this approach. Mm-hmm. That's really exciting. And so what's happening, you know, we're, and I know that um, Sharon DeWitt has been a huge, huge proponent of intersectionality. She was actually one of the people that was talking with me about it when I was in the early stage of my dissertation and really helps um, like turn the light bulb on in my head. Because I, mm-hmm. again, had been asking for so long why we were only looking at one variable or another and what were the ways in which we could try and combine those in a theoretically meaningful way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. When, uh, you know, usually we, uh, a lot of people who've been on the show and myself as well and you, you know, we always go to this uh, conference every year, um, the American Association of uh, Physical Anthropology Conference. And uh, I also know that you you also run around quite a lot um, besides the bioarchaeology <laughs> sessions. You also, you know, charge towards like the forensic anthropology ones. Mm-hmm. And I want to know, like, do you ever uh, bring in these ideas about intersectionality? Does it feed into your forensic work at all in any way? So in my forensic work, so <laughs> I like to distinguish between the forensic work that I do and the forensic work that I'd like to do. <laughs> um, I definitely enjoy what I do now, but there are things that I would really, really um, like to get into. And unfortunately, there's just not enough time in, in, in my life and not enough, you know, just of my brain that can focus on everything at once. <laughs> like I'm human. <laughs> so 
when I think about things that I do, I look at human decomposition. Um, I'm interested in trauma. I'm interested in a lot of those aspects. I have helped collect data on microbial communities. I've helped uh, around the body. I've helped collect data on rapid DNA technology, but I really, really do want to like experience sort of, um, the human rights side of forensic anthropology, the disaster victim identification side Mm -hmm. of forensic anthropology, the mass fatality management side of things, because I love bioarchaeology. I really do. And I love the narratives. I love trying to understand what happened in the past and hope that it will inform things in the future. Yeah. But I've always sort of kind of almost needed the forensic side of things because it helps me feel like I'm making a direct impact. Mm -hmm. And I would love to be able to bring these ideas of intersectionality into my forensic research. It's just, it's currently what I, the, the, the purview that I have in forensics right now during this point in my career is not, I don't think, a relevant space for intersectionality to be located. But I think that keeping intersectionality or the idea of intersectionality in mind is really helpful. So um, recent, or was it last year, I was helping out with a friends recovery that I can't provide information about, but I can say that we came across um, a burial uh, that was, you know, just the, the soil was very acidic. So there was just no, no bone left, but there was still ironically some clothing left. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that burial, there were, it was like socks, but I don't remember the fancy name for socks. Um, like, the socks, I go, I think it was like knee-high socks or something like that. But I, uh, I had a colleague that was like, oh, so this was probably a woman. And I was like, hold on. We can't say that for sure because there's so many confounding variables there. For example, gender is fluid, right? So I was very much like, let's not just assume this person was a female. Let's just say we have socks. And that is all we have from this burial and move on, you know? Um, it's just, it's, it's really, for me, uh, uh, it's become more of a way of, 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 of thinking about mm-hmm. things in general. It just, I don't have a way currently to apply it concretely and explicitly and directly mm-hmm. to my forensic research. Uh, so, you know, uh, we, we are in a sort of like a new uh, decade, unless you are a like nitpicky, <laughs> well, actually uh, kind of person who believes the new decade is coming in a year's time. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> The next decade, you know, do you do you think that it's um, likely? Like, are you hopeful that you'll be able to continue, um, you know, both your bioarchaeology and forensic work? I really, really want to. Honestly, um, I'm definitely leaving myself open for uh, as many job opportunities that I can get um, in various areas of bioant. Um, but ideally, I would be able to continue to explore for, you know, forensics and work on cases and make that, that kind of immediate impact mm-hmm. on people. And then as well as really kind of continue to interrogate the archaeological record and, and look at the, you know, the, the health consequences of intersectionality, especially within the industrial period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, and also I know that you, um, you know, you know a lot of uh, anthropologists who work in England, and you're about to, uh, you know, go go out there and visit six six collections there. Um, do you do you know that there is like a big debate uh, in the UK as to whether like um, taphonomic facilities or otherwise known as body farms? There's a big debate about whether that's like a right thing to do uh, to create in the UK. 
Mm, yeah, I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you What do you think, though? Like, uh, because you you already work in one or have worked in in ones in the in the states. So I think with when it comes to facilities like the one we have here, that we have to be very mindful of what the social ramifications are. So. When I think back to industrial history and I think back to anatomy and anatomical schools, or I think back to, you know, grave robbing and things like that, or I think back to even our, our modern anatomical collections, like our famous ones we have in the United States Mm -hmm. that are, you know, predominantly, you know, built by unidentified or unclaimed persons that if we're not careful with how we facilitate, um, those, you know, the donation programs that result from having a facility like ours, um, there can be room for some definitely racial or other or, or socioeconomic biases, you know, A, in terms of the construction of the samples for, you know, representation, but B, socially, as in who are we allowing to donate mm-hmm. to the facility and what are the, what are the sort of the, what's the social context around that? And so, you know, for example, there's a lot of stigma around in, in the United States around um, health-related research or any research dealing with human remains um, or humans in general because of the history of racism in this country. Um, and so, when you look at the Bass, the William Bass collection that we have here, uh, you can see a lot of the effects of the of the social stigma resulting from very real events um, and how it's affecting those collections. And so from a social perspective, I think we need to be anyone, any, any country curious about developing their own program needs to be um, cognizant of the effects of that program, as well as of the social context in the present that is either preventing or facilitating the formation of those facilities. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I look at the research that's done here and it's honestly astounding we have all sorts of projects going on at one time. You know, my advisor is the director for the facility. I don't know how she does it. There are, you know, hundred thousand, multiple, I can't even say that. Like, like there are million dollar grants that, you know, every few years that just come in and it's just like there's four or five or six projects at once that the graduate students get to work on. So it's a great experience for them. Mm-hmm. And the, we are very, very strict in the fact that we only take donated individuals, um, people that, physically are, are, you know, have signed paperwork saying, I want to be donated. Right. Um, we don't do any sort of sketchy business. <laughs> um, and so for me, it's like, I know that the people that are at the facility are there because they want to be there. And they want to, they want to um, help in any way they can. And so, you know, as long as you just respect them and respect that and take care with them and, you know, abide by their wishes. Like we have very extensive questionnaires that are like, yes, you can do this. No, you can't do that. You know, we, we instate protocols that help protect their privacy in case of like, you know, planes flying over and stuff like that. Um, we even work with other facilities. We have some donors that like want to come to our facility for the decomposition part, but then they want to have the remains taken to uh, some other collection. Like, you know what I mean? There are ways in, that we work with these individuals Mm -hmm. and to the point where uh, we even will sometimes have family members come back and visit them if they want, not at the facility while they're actively decomposing. But, um, you know, we have, we have, we have the remains in a, 
careful collected or a careful like you know temperature controlled environment um, within deep within our building so there's very very protected barely anybody has keys to that room um, and they can come back if they wish and they can you know spend time with their loved ones and so I don't know for us you know it's a good thing but again there's a lot of context around that, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that's something that policymakers should think about in other countries where that are, you know, currently debating whether or not these facilities are um, necessary or whether they're detrimental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are really good insights. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking of closing the show uh, soon. Where, where can people find you online? If people have any questions about your interview. So they can find me. I have an Instagram, but it's not like a, it's just like a personal Instagram, same with Facebook. Mm-hmm. So they can honestly just, they, I have a web, I have a webpage through the University of Tennessee um, that they can find me at if you just go to the anthropology website. Mm-hmm. And um, if you go to the anthropology website and look for the graduate student page, you can find me on there. Uh, it has my email, it has my bio, it has all that stuff. Um, so that's probably the best place to find me or at conferences. I'll have a name tag on. I'll probably be really loud, vocal and extroverted. It'll be really hard to mm-hmm. miss. Excellent. Cause I know that you listened to um, Cecilia Collins episode on sinusitis. I know that you know that we usually ask the guests for a hashtag at the end of the episode. Okay. How about, what about uh, hashtag intersectional bioarchaeology? Okay. Yeah. That sounds That sounds good. Intersectional bioarchaeology. Mm-hmm. Derek, this has been great. Do you have anything that you feel we haven't covered already? Any closing messages? Um, in terms of my exact research and experience, no, but I was wondering if I could potentially put a plug in for our um, one of our human rights conferences that we're going to be hosting here. Of course. Yeah, certainly. So we have a program at UT that is... Uh, a graduate certification program and it's called the disasters displacement and human rights program. Um, and we have a conference that occurs every other year. Uh, and this year it's, uh, going to be on April between April 3rd and 5th. And it's co-sponsored by the Southern Anthropological Society. And interestingly enough, the, uh, theme is intersections. So we, you know, we're looking for submissions from all over anthropology as the research relates to DDHR. So whether it's bioarch, whether it's arc, whether it's cultural, you know, language, whether it's, you know, any of that, mm-hmm. um, we're really happy to, to um, put, we are really happy to put together, we would love to put together a very diverse sort of conference program for that. Cool. So yeah, that's about yeah, it. I can definitely uh, include links to that uh, in the show notes under your episode when it goes up. Uh, listeners if you want to find more information about Derek's work I'll be including links in the uh, website post on arcanenth.com as always new episodes of the show come out every Monday Wednesday and Friday on iTunes Spotify Stitcher and the podcast website Thank you so much to the patrons who keep the show going. If you also listening want to uh, contribute to the show and help it keep going, then you can also go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod to find out more information about that. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Derek, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Thank you. And listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) Thank you.